Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. The job of transitioning the primary sector from cows to plants will be a long but necessary journey. So if you were looking for someone to show the way, you'd do worse than Jade Gray. He's managed a farm and a supermarket butchery, ran a meat processing plant in China, and launched a chain of pizza stores in Beijing called Gungho Pizza, which, by the way, was China's first B Corp certified food and beverage company. Now Jade and his family are back in New Zealand to launch Off-Piste Provisions, a plant-based food startup dedicated to making Aotearoa as famous for its plant protein as it is for its meat. His first project is a plant-based beef jerky, and he joins me now to chew the fat. This interview first appeared on my other podcast, The Feed NZ, a podcast all about the future of food. So why jerky? I think we realised we needed a, a beachhead product to cut our chops on the, uh, you know, in terms of the technology, uh, the brand, get to market. And I've always been into adventure, love the outdoors. And uh, I've always just enjoyed having uh, jerky as that protein hit on the road. Mm. And it really played into our adventurous spirit of the brand. And um, mm. so that was probably the first reason I was led towards that rather than down the, the chiller aisle. Um, the other thing that I think which I found really interesting was we wanted to launch our first product which had nothing to hide. You know, it wasn't a mince, it wasn't a, a patty, it wasn't a sausage where you create a, a mix of ingredients and and inside it, there is some, you know, uh, some plant-based meats. We really want to have a piece of meat that you measured on its its goodness straight up. Hmm. Uh, so that was the challenge of the jerky, and and yeah, I mean, it was great. It really pushed us and got us to a point. Where we've developed now the IP that we can take that across a, a raft of different products. Hmm, that's a good idea. Uh, without revealing any commercial secrets, can you tell us how you make plant-based beef jerky? Hey, I can in terms of you know the, the the general thinking, and it's really the I was actually out of the pizza business as you mentioned in the intro, and I was quite stunned the whole way through. There's actually a, uh, a similarity in the way in which you can take a dry ingredient, add water, and you create these really robust fibers like you're doing pizza dough. And it's probably more high tech than that in the way in which we do that, but to bring it back to its basic concept that's what we're doing hmm. um, so we're creating some really tough fibers out of uh, some really uh, fine ingredients and so hmm. through that process of adding some ip and technology in that uh, we end up with some imitations uh, which we think are yeah pretty indistinguishable from the real thing mm, that's excellent and did you do that uh, kind of in your own kitchen uh, and and kind of test it on your uh, poor family or did you use something like the food bowl you know that facility in in auckland hey it's, it's been a long journey vincent originally i did test it on um some willing suspects uh they didn't know what they getting themselves into and that was uh, <laughs> in a pizza chain we used to develop our own benchtop uh plant-based meats and dairy uh, back in about 2018. Uh, so that's where I really got the passion to do this. And when coming back to New Zealand and, and seeing that there was a, you know, a need for it, uh, but also realized a need to you know, create a world-class product. We didn't want to do something that was just great in New Zealand. We wanted to be able to compete in the world stage. So reached out for the smartest minds we could find 
and we ended up teaming up with uh, Massey University in the food pilot program, uh, hmm. led by you know, New Zealand's kind of godfather of plant-based meats, um, Alan Hardacre, who's a senior researcher at, at Massey. So we went with them for six months on, on campus and then moved up to the food bowl operation as part of the New Zealand uh, Food Innovation Network, where we hmm. scaled up the product uh, launching to market in, in November. So yeah, gone from the kitchen right through to the, the whole tech piece um, and into the market. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like the, the ecosystem's actually working. Um, and that fits into a kind of bigger vision that you've got. I'm quoting you here. You say, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to move up the value chain by optimizing crops for the coming wave of the protein, uh, the coming wave of protein formats. What well, what do you mean by that? What's why is it a once in a lifetime opportunity, and what's this value chain that you're talking about? Well, I think it's always yeah, at least in recent recent times, the whole challenge of the New Zealand egg, egg sector has been about uh, value over volume, and how do we move up that? And and we've done it successfully in some areas and, and struggled in others. I've seen up in China and, and other markets, you know, what's happening with this, this kind of, uh, this wave of alternative proteins. And the big question in my mind, well, what's New Zealand's point of difference? Because hmm. we don't have the, the prairies of, of Russia or, or Canada. Uh, and that scale piece will always, you know, it won't be an option for us in, this, in, this, in the arable space. So if we're looking at the value and the technology piece, as I've gone this journey of developing these products with the team, it's become apparent that a lot of the ingredients that are currently being used were never designed for the purposes they're now being put towards. And if you think about future foods and alternative proteins, New Zealand has also an incredible history of, of seed uh, cultivation and yeah. uh, genetics and, and uh, you know, a really rich culture in that. So you know, my vision with that sector would be how do we optimize the breeding of the seeds of the crops towards the end format? And whether it's vertical farming, whether it's extrusion, whether it's fermentation, whether it's uh, cellular agriculture, they're going to take more and more refined ingredients to get better and better products. And so how do we take that knowledge that we already have, move it towards a really high value end play rather than just smashing out tons of peas or legumes? Uh, to actually create really high-end crops that are optimised for the end process. Hmm. So that's a much more vertically integrated approach to farming, and it's less of a commodity approach, isn't it? Where you know a, a commodity approach produces stuff and then says, "Hey, does anyone want to buy this? I've just grown it." What you're saying is actually is growing really for quite a specific market purpose. Absolutely. I mean, you look at some of the best success stories. Uh, a New Zealand ag in the last few decades, when you look at the Merino wool story, you know, really optimised a, a breed of sheep for a very specific purpose, whether that, that was Italian suits or, or uh, you know, hiking gear. Uh, more recently, you've got the A2 milk story. And, you know, I've seen firsthand up in China the, the value that's created across not just New Zealand brands, but American brands and European brands that everybody's mm -hmm. got A2 milk on their, on their packets now. Um, so how do we do that store in the plant-based sector? I think it's going to be coming back to that idea of bringing uh, food technology um, along with great farmers and great practices uh, at the farm end combined with that innovation. Um, that's where we find that sweet spot. Uh, there's some precedent for this, as you, you've mentioned, A2 milk, but I think about how many apple 
varieties have been developed here in New Zealand kiwi fruit the same you know out of plant and food you get the right from the science the original genetics and then vertically integrated through growers and then ultimately through a big distribution outfit like I don't know say Zespri or um, you know turners and growers so the so much of that value is captured by New Zealand owned or um, what used to be at least New Zealand owned um, entities so that you're not just kind of letting all the value go after the farm gate. Oh, totally. And, and I mean, Zespa is a great example of that. I mean, just look at, you know, whether it's recently with the gold or the, the red kiwi fruit and uh, that value created out of a, you know, what was once upon a time a, a pretty commoditized product. And I think that's the, other, you know, the point around commodities is if we're going to take farmers and the egg sector on this journey of plant-based uh, proteins, alternative proteins, there's going to be more than just a commodity offering at the end of it. Hmm. Otherwise, what's hmm. the point of flipping a, a pasture or a, or a crop out for this new new wave if they're still back in the commodity game? Hmm. So that's really yes. a challenge to entrepreneurs and, and that to create the value and to bring these guys along for the ride and, and then obviously share the rewards if we can crack it. Hmm. What kind of crops are we talking about, Jade? Do you have any specific um, you know, kind of varieties or breed in mind? The great thing about the alternative protein space is right now it's it's really just yeah a really open playing field of what can be used uh, because there's so much technology that can be uh, applied. I mean, you're looking at the you know the, the usual suspects right now. Uh, originally, it was soy. Uh, you've got now pea is kind of the in favour um, source. You've got faba bean, uh, broad bean, uh, another word for that. Uh, you've got up and comers like hemp. Uh, I know lupin, uh, chickpea. Uh, you know, there's, there's a raft of of, of legumes and, and and various crops that can be used. And I think it's going to come back to you know root identifying a nuanced approach from New Zealand, saying, hey, what's going to be suitable for these crops in New Zealand? Looking mm. at the topography, looking mm. at the uh, the seed banks, looking at the experience, looking at the effects of climate change and how our climate's going to change in the next 10, 20 years. Well, let's optimize crops for that change rather than, mm-hmm. you know, be a champagne region that can hardly grow champagne um, mm. because of climate change. So how do we look forward and, and really set ourselves up uh, for where the market's going, but at the same time leverage, you know, the existing knowledge that's out there. Uh, so, yeah, in, endless, endless endless crops, but uh, they're definitely the ones right now that are kind of trending. Okay. Not all land is suitable for arables, right? You know, if we're talking about steep hill country or alpine environments where are better suited for cattle or, say, forestry, what, what's your answer to, to that, you know, to difficult farmland that uh, would be hard to drive a tractor over? Yeah, I think for myself, uh, looking at that, you know, problem, obviously dairy right now takes the flat and that's definitely the you know, the, the golden goose of all the exports. Um, I think that will change, uh, you know, whether it's through, you know, policy, whether it's through uh, change in demand. But if there's not that organic movement um, of, of, of cattle off the flat uh, across at least the majority of it, the great thing about a lot of these plant crops is that uh, they don't have to be on, on, the, on the flat. Um, you look at some of the uh, crops abroad and, you know, look at, for example, the hemp industry and, you know, some of the, the crops that are, are built, uh, are grown, definitely not on pristine flat terrain. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it comes back to, I think, I always think of the, you know, the, the story that 
I think it was in the, the records in, in New York in the 19, start of the century, start of the, start of the 20th century. And, you know, one of the big challenges in New York was just thinking they can't grow New York. And the reason was they had nowhere to put the cow, the, the horse down. And it's like, <laughs> we just can't grow the city anymore. And, and they basically decided they're going to stop bringing people into the city and, and immigrants. And it was because we were ready to put the dung. So, you know, with the advent of the automobile and, and different technologies that come along, that now becomes obsolete. So I think we've got to look at, you know, topography and, and these things as, hey, we'll, we'll work our way through that. Um, mm. If the demand's there, if the innovation's there, uh, if the entrepreneurship's there, I, I don't see that um, being the, the thing that's going to, you know, trip this, this uh, movement up. Yeah. People talk about a mosaic approach to farming, don't they, where you, you'll get a variety of crops but also a variety of animals. Uh, and uh, I've seen, or at least discussion about it, um, in Southland combining dairy with um, oats um, and either alternating the seasonality or, or um, you know, kind of one one year in oats, one year in cattle. Um, you know, I don't know enough about growing for that to be a reality, but this sort of mosaic approach to farming is much more about the regenerative um, approach, isn't it, where you're thinking about what's the topography and the soil telling us about this land? What's the climate telling us about what could grow here, whether it's animals, plant, and uh, as opposed to sort of a monocrop, um, you know, sort of universality? Absolutely. And, and you know, the farmers I talk to who are always looking for ways to, you know, cross-crop cross, cross um, to get, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at legumes being great nitrogen, uh, you know, fixes, uh, remove the need for a lot of fertilizers, uh, and it builds resilience in the microbes, the soil. You know, there's a whole raft of, of advantages, and I think the, you know, the region ag space is, is highlighting that. I mean, it goes back to, you know, look at permaculture uh, and how that you know, ecosystem works. Um, and when you get into monocultures, yeah, then you get all your issues with pests and, and uh, you know, crop failures and whatnot. So, no, that's you know, a big part of what we're trying to do as well is not create just another monocrop. Hmm. How do we create formulations and products that are using a raft of ingredients we can flip in and out depending on seasonal uh, situations, depending on commodity pricing, depending on the, the, the genetics we can develop um, through that process. So, yeah, I think that holistic mosaic approach is definitely the way to do it uh, and making it. And also from the nutrition point of view, getting a complete amino acid profile you do mm. want these different types of, of, of plants coming in. So there's, there's a bunch of reasons why we wouldn't be wanting to create another uh, monocrop uh, in New Zealand. Mm, that's such a good point about the um, the variety of amino acids. Um, all of this presumes, of course, that there's a demand for plant-based protein. And uh, I, I feel like we have been asking or telling this story for some time now. Is there a danger that the hype is outrunning the reality? I think there is, and it's got to be, you know, and I, I know as cutely as anybody, when you're starting to look at things like investment, CapEx, you know, dropping down on some pretty in capital-intensive infrastructure, you can't get caught up in the hype. You've got mm. to really look at it saying, hey, 5, 10, 20 years out, what is it looking like, mm. and, and getting the best information you can get. I think a big part of it is that, A, it's been really embraced by a younger generation. And they're obviously a very vocal uh, element of society, and especially yeah. when you look at social media and new media. So, yeah, I think there's definitely a loud voice there um, above the actual probably 
uh, you know, the consumption of those products. Um, also, and especially if you look then at diet dietary groups and vegans in particular, I mean, they're a very vocal group, uh, you know, online and whatnot. So there is definitely hope there. But what I look at less than that piece of it, um, Vincent, is, you know, what are some of these larger forces at play? And if you look at agriculture, you really need to look at that, you know, really at a geopolitical level, um, looking at a macroeconomic level, um, looking at a sector-wide level. And that's the part of the equation that gets me excited. Uh, I'll give you a good example, which, you know, really got me fascinated in the space from a, a sector point of view was uh, we noticed in 2016 when I was living up in China uh, that a mandate came through from the government that the government wanted to reduce the population's meat consumption by 50% by 2030. Okay, that's just a, a mind-boggling number. Hmm. Um, and when I dug a little deeper, um, what I actually discovered was that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were in the you know the primaries and they were fighting it out. There's a lot of rhetoric. The one thing they did agree on was an anti-China stance. And so China realized that in Achilles Hill, and that was the vast majority of the animal feed comes from North America and South America through soy, soy meal. And so they basically had this Achilles Hill with their with their food security. And so they realized that through the, the land of China, the water resources, there's no way they could feed their population on animal products as they had been through importation. So there was a big push towards plant-based uh, because I knew they, they could. It's so much more efficient. I mean, it's 15 times more efficient in terms of you know, climate impact and, and, and eight times in terms of uh, protein yield compared to animal products. So they realized there was actually a way to go to navigate this building Cold War. As a result, You've got a country like New Zealand that has all of its protein exports, you know, going up to predominantly Asia, uh, and China being the biggest um, buyer of those. And yet, you've got a government that's trying to encourage the population to move towards plant-based living and diets for food hmm. security reasons. So, you know, that's one example of of some of the forces behind. You've got supply chain issues now uh, globally because of, on the back of COVID. Um, so, a lot of countries are looking for food security inside the country. Uh, you look at Singapore; they've just announced they want to have thirty percent of their food produced with inside Singapore by 2030. They currently have about 5%. Hmm. And they've looked at alternative proteins as being the way to do that. So bioreactors, cellular meats, plant-based foods, uh, and they're the first country in the world to actually allow the sale of, agri- uh, of cellular meats in the country. So yeah, you've got a lot of these forces at play that are really leaning towards plant-based meat. It's not about uh, you know, a vocal uh, group of vegans uh, on mm-hmm. Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how interesting. And you've experienced that firsthand, right? You, you, uh, in your experience with the, um, uh, the the pizza chain, you developed uh, plant-based and quite a lot of vegetarian alternatives, right, for your customers. Yeah, we did. It was kind of this, you know, that was a 10-year business. And at the start, I think, yeah, we must have had maybe five percent. I think of our menu was either vegetarian or or, or vegan. And then over that time, I, I kind of went on a plant based journey myself. Um, and as an entrepreneur, what typically happens is your business kind of typically follows your character as well. Um, so we eventually got the business more and more engaged in that plant based world. And uh, what really kicked it off was when we were applying for a B Corp certification. And a big part of that is your whole supply chain. And what are the carbon emissions of your suppliers and, and who are those suppliers, what third-party accreditations they have. And we realized that, you know, there was two or three areas that we had, if we're going to have impact on the ecology and on, on society, 
It was going to be through food waste, packaging, and the type of food that we were selling. They were, you know, those are three big, big points mm-hmm. that we identified. Mm-hmm. And so when we looked at the menu, saying, "Hey, what what is the lowest impact menu?" and and uh, and the like, uh, you know, plant based was the the clear favourite. So we mm-hmm. went on that journey, and when we left, it was over fifty percent of the menu uh, is now uh, veg- vegetarian or vegan. So um, and, and the business is going great. So no, I think it's testament that there's definitely a growing need um, up in those key markets. I'm curious about that business, um, and and in fact, your whole career looks. Uh, I've I've only seen it on paper, and um, so I'm curious to know about some of these places you worked at. But tell us about the starting a business in China. That um, that sounds hard. <laughs> Pretty scarred from it um, a few times, Vincent. It was definitely, uh, you know, I, I think any startup in the world's tough, um, and I have huge respect for anybody that you know, goes on that journey. Uh, China, you could argue, was one of the tougher places um, to do that. And yeah, the first one was tough, um, and I got taken out by a by a, a, an epidemic by SARS, you know, and and that was my first taste of of a uh, yeah a virus taking out a business. Wow! Um, so that was what a, was that two thousand twelve? Was it? That was uh, two thousand three. Oh, so two thousand three. Yeah, we started a fitness center in two thousand uh, in Beijing, and it was going great, going gangbusters, and then uh, SARS came. We got shut down for six months. Uh, it was a pretty you know pretty fledging business, didn't have the cash flow to, you know, gyms are all about money up front, then a large, you know, CapEx, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and we just couldn't couldn't hack it. So um, rather than leaving, I decided to stay on and, and opened up a very small cafe uh, in, in Beijing uh, because what I actually saw was that everybody was fleeing Beijing on, on mass and all these properties came up which were never available in Beijing. I mean, it was, you know, this is pre-Olympics. It was really hard to get this kind of property. So I decided to stay and scrape together some cash, and we opened up a very small cafe on a on a corner opposite a, a really bustling subway station. And uh, we ended up once you know SARS finished and everybody came to Beijing. Yeah, we just smashed it and kind of just you know turned the whole thing around and got into mm-hmm. food and beverage. So uh, that was the start of a you know 16, 17 year journey um, building out that food and beverage group. Mm. And so did that same cafe eventually become the chain of of um, uh, of pizza outlets? Sorry, let, well, let's get the name right. It was um, Gung Ho Pizza. Yeah, hey, that was the you know kind of the seed. Uh, we created about three or four brands, different concepts. Um, the first was Lush, which was a kind of a cafe bar based on my favourite um, cafe down in Wanaka. And then we moved into uh, pizza and burgers because there was a massive Korean, American, Japanese uh, expat community there. Um, mm-hmm. That was their kind of staple food. And then I realized there's a great play that with New Zealand product because pizza, obviously, you know, mozzarella cheese from Fonterra. We worked really close with Fonterra on that. Uh, and then we had, you know, great New Zealand beef from, uh, you know, Silver Firm Farms and really tied into the whole New Zealand story. We served, mm. we had mower on tap. Uh, we had, you know, Villa Maria um, by the glass. And it, by the end of it, you know, gung-ho pizza when we, when we uh, you know, moved back to New Zealand, you know, it really became a bit of a, I guess, a, a beachhead for a lot of New Zealand brands to, you know, get into the market, get some feedback from us, and, and we really mm. took care of those brands. So, mm. yeah, it, it was a fun way to tie tie the whole heritage together. Did you sell the business, or are you still a shareholder in it? No, we sold it. Um, we, but fortunately, we did a, a management buyout, so uh, all the all the employees of the business uh, basically 
you know, they'd been there from anywhere from, you know, 20 years to kind of 10 years of his, the older team. And they, they uh, yeah, they pitched in and, and we, we cut a deal and it was great. And I'm still, you know, on calls them during the week. Great. Uh, just to do what I can. But no, it's very much them now. And they actually opened up the latest franchise uh, a couple of weeks ago, which I was incredibly proud to hear. So they're, <laughs> they're, they're booming. It's great. How does a, a Kiwi boy f- end up in China anyway? What, what was that uh, part of your journey? They actually started in uh, London, and I I was fortunate to get a scholarship up to a public school in London, and I took a I did my A levels um, after leaving um, school in New Zealand, and during economics class had a, a A level economics teacher ask me, hey, what are you going to do when you go back to New Zealand? And I told him uh, I was very keen to get into international trade and and you know uh, trade New Zealand food and beverage up into Europe and and, and the States, and that was 1992, and he said, hey. To be honest, man, like your better option is Asia because I, you know, Europe doesn't really care about New Zealand any longer. And it was, it was a bit of a harsh lesson, but it was true. And so he said, go back and learn an Asian language. So I went back to Otago uh, and there was Japanese or Chinese. I kind of thought Japan had, you know, it was all the rage and everybody was doing Japanese. And there's about, about oh, a handful of people doing Chinese. And that just to me seemed a lot more exciting, a lot more adventurous. Mm-hmm. I did the research and the economy was starting to really pick up again after the, you know, the, the issue of, you know, the Tiananmen uh, you know, incident. And it was really starting to look like there could be something happening there. So jumped in, um, copped a lot of grief, got laughed at and just got stuck in. And, and I did a degree in marketing in Chinese, um, struggled. I was the bottom of the class for three years in a row. Uh, <laughs> but I, as I was proud to say, I, I ended up, you know, six out of 60 that started and uh i guess that put me in the top 10 percentile so it's one way to look at it but it was <laughs> no it was it was really you know challenging but loved it and then out of uni i got offered a, a gig up in china because i was desperate to get up there i just wanted to get up there and, and get amongst it hmm. so there was actually a, a cattle farm up in northern canterbury called tamania um, angus stud uh, one of new zealand's top angus studs and they were uh they'd created a joint venture up in northern china and they were looking for a, a farmer that spoke Chinese. Um, that didn't go down too well. They, they couldn't really crack that one. So they decided to find somebody who spoke Chinese and teach them how to farm. And so <laughs> I was that, I was the, yeah, they, they pulled me in and I spent six months up on the farm, um, you know, baptism by fire. And then they shipped me off with 300 cattle. We, we flew up on a, a 7, 7, 747 megatop. Uh, Singapore Airlines plane up into China on the with the cattle, and we uh, put with down the a, cattle. With Surely the not. Cattle. Absolutely, it was Nahan. Yeah, it's top uh, class travel for, it was, for New it was Zealand beef. Class, Vincent. Um, it was. I mean, it was an incredible experience. I mean, it really was. And uh, you know, at one point, the the pilot got us. Um, t- we're up in the bubble at the top of the plane. He said, "Hey, there's a bit of movement down below, and can you guys go and check it out?" So our vet. Uh, went down there all masked up because a lot of ammonia down there and he had a a, um, a tranquilizer gun and one of the bulls had got out of the pen and was legging it around, the, the, <laughs> you know, having a, a understandably bit, bit anxious about where he was at. Um, and those airplanes, you know, it's pretty thin aluminium, those those walls. Yeah. So um, yeah. he could have punched a hole pretty quick. <laughs> so, yeah, that was uh, definitely uh, an exciting ride up there. And then I, I was based up there for a year uh, as actually as the only foreigner on the, on the venture. Um, living in a village up in northern China, 
Oh, well, that is a baptism by fire on multiple fronts. Yeah, really. Yeah. You know, um, when you go away for so long and you're able to see New Zealand afresh, when you looked back and uh, and when you came back, uh, how, how did, I mean, it's always that classic question, so what do you think of New Zealand, you know, but wh- wh- how did you see the opportunity for New Zealand from a, from a, from a food point of view? It was quite a, um, it was kind of a, a full circle because I was out of a, a food family, more food retail grocery. Um, so I'd always been around food and, and selling food. And then going offshore and, and seeing the best of New Zealand, you know, put into the toughest markets, the most exciting market, you know, I think in the world, China. And then over the years, getting harsh lessons about really what is our value in market and mm. going away from the branding kind of, you know, pitch lines to actually what does sell on a Friday night in downtown Beijing. And it was a real, yeah, and, and being a marketer, I was always fascinated in consumer consumption and patterns and, and whatnot. So I think the first thing was really sobering um, about, you know, what is our true value offshore? And, and obviously mm. in different markets, it's a different value. Uh, but let's kind of use Asia, which has always been my my kind of passion. Um, and what I came to realize is often the value is not what we perceive it as being. And although we sell a product and we, we kind of think it's because of A, it's actually because of B. And so I've been trying to focus on B and saying, mm-hmm. hey, what are those insights I've managed to get um, by you know working a restaurant floor for 15 years in, in China um, and talking to customers and, and getting feedback and, and asking about this bear or that bit of, bit of steak or whatnot. And then bring that back and really like consumer insight-led approach to innovation. Mm. That, that, I think, is what defines ad business, is that it's led from that insight. And then rather than going to garage and creating a great product and selling it to the world, we, we tried to you know, do it the other way around. Mm. Um, so that was probably the, the kind of the process. And then what those insights were, I mean, you know, pretty endless. But uh, definitely, uh, you know, there's some things that are on trend um, that are definitely going to be, I think, you know, key movers in our in our export economy and in the decades to come. Some of the things that are moving uh, are, are moving against us. I think about the impact of, say, vertical farming or synthetics or fermentation, where um, the taste profile and the, the health um, component is up there without the slaughter and without the transport. And you used Singapore, for example, um, not known for its food, but the technology is such now that, as you say, they what was the proportion? Twenty percent of their thirty uh, percent by thirty percent. So that's a huge amount of protein to produce effectively in fa- in factories, right? Um, I, I'm assuming they're not going to make horrible food. So some of these trends are moving against our traditional approach to farming. Does that worry you? No, I find it really exciting. I mean, New Zealand's always been an innovator of food and beverage. I mean, we go right back to, you know, when we first started exporting protein. I mean, it's the Māori to, uh, you know, seafarers and, and colonists, um, right through to, you know, then your, your, your whalers, um, you had your sheep and, and the whole sheep craze, and then, you know, over the years into the dairy. So, you know, we've always been on the edge of, of creating consumer goods for export markets. So I don't see any difference in alternative proteins being different. I think the biggest challenge we've got is that emotional attachment to our uh, heritage um, mm. around animal products. Um, and secondly, 
the understanding about how to leverage that technology across into these new new spaces. Um, I think the other thing is, hey, you know, we've got a, a world population that's growing at a, you know, quite a scary rate and you know, going to peak hopefully somewhere around that kind of 9 billion mark, it would seem. Um, and so yeah, these markets are getting bigger. There's going to be more niches. Uh, New Zealand's never going to be able to provide you know, that, that kind of volume to the world. So I don't see the, you know, and it's true. I mean, the likes of Shenzhen, Silicon Valley, Singapore, Tel Aviv, these are the future competitors of New Zealand's protein. Hmm. And we need to wake up to that, absolutely. Um, but we'll find our niche in the same way they will. I mean, something like Singapore is going to be world-class at vertical farming. You know, guarantee it. You know, they've got that. That's the whole infrastructure the government support. That's their, their sandpit. Um, New Zealand won't have that drive or that, you know, we know that evolution comes through typically through necessity. And so hmm. we're not going to have the necessity to have these high rises in downtown Auckland, um, you know, growing um, vertical farms. But we will have a necessity uh, to reduce emissions on the farm, uh, to reduce intensification of livestock on the farm, to improve hmm. the waterways um, through the, you know, the types of fertilizers and the regenerative practices and the ways in which we're growing protein is on. So that's what's going to drive our evolution. Mm. So I think there'll be a whole raft of areas that um, will develop in the world, but it's important that we have, yeah, that, that insight to choose the one or two that are really going to fit our model. I think you, you've talked earlier about also the importance of value chain. So actually being completely aligned with what the consumer demand is and all the steps in the journey to, towards that so that you're growing with an end in mind, right? You're not just growing some random thing and then hoping like hell. I remember years ago sitting at a conference talking to a, a senior guy from what was then the New Zealand Dairy Board. And I said, well, what's your job? And, and he said, um, well, my job is to take the butter and the milk powder that's made and then stuff it in places in the world where nobody um, nobody knows but there are lots of corners where I can find you know holes to stuff our New Zealand butter uh, which is <laughs> yeah which was a supreme effort that's quite to a be able to, description yeah, yeah. Um, but his his point was uh, we, we are not in those days and it's fast changing right and it's to your point we, we were not consumer aligned we were not demand aligned we were we were making stuff and then hoping like heck someone would buy it so your point is actually we need to be much more insight led and then use that use the relationships in that value chain to to actually create products people want and get it to them you know i don't think i don't think i'm uh, i believe that we haven't done that i think we've done it very well and that's why we've been so strong internationally. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to work close to, you know, companies like, you know, Fonterra and, and uh, Silverman Farms and those companies up, up there. And, I've, you know, these are incredibly innovative companies. You know, don't, mm. don't get me wrong on that. I think what I'm leading to is that the markets are moving so fast in the last five or 10 years away from that style of innovation, which has involved teams up the market, feedbacks into New Zealand and whatnot. Um, but it's a speed at which it's happening, which is what we need to be aware of. It's no longer a two, three, five-year kind of gradual change towards new trends. This stuff happens typically in quarters, six months, maybe a year at max, where the whole market can really swing um, in certain spaces. And, and not in you know, all spaces, but definitely uh, you know, in a lot of these opportunities. So I think mm. what it is for me is more uh, increasing our ability rather than having it. We definitely have it. We need to just get better at it. And we need to be more plugged in at the front end. Um, and I know it's how difficult it is in Asia. I mean, I've you know, obviously learned Chinese over two decades and I can speak to consumers. And 
for entrepreneurs or companies going out there, it's, it's bloody challenging and all of those you know, foreign markets. But we need to tap, I believe, more into those locals, uh, including our teams based here in New Zealand. We can't mm. be relying on people on distant shores. You know, we need to, there's a, an incredible array of cultures in New Zealand. We need to bring those people into our teams in New Zealand that are right at the, at the farming end of it, talking about mm. these products, not just relying on a, a quarterly report from the consumer team up in Beijing. Yes, great point. Uh, all right, we've got uh, a few minutes left to um, give you the stage to answer the question, what does it look like to be successful for Off Piste and for Jade Grey and maybe even New Zealand in five years, maybe even 10 years? I think for, you know, for the company, um, it would definitely to be a, a world player in the alternative protein space uh, where we can you know, have the skills and the, the funding to compete with the best. That's definitely where we want to, you know, play it. Uh, in terms of, you know, New Zealand, we want to be part of the solution around greenhouse gas emissions, and there's going to take multi, you know, multitude of solutions. We want to be, we want, we want to be one of them, and really help that sector uh, build capability and size and scale where it can mm. actually have a real dent in those emissions. Um, and I think around methane is the one that you know we really can tackle. Um, and mm-hmm. especially given, you know, we've signed up to the methane pledge. Uh, what is it? By 2030, I think it's, you know, at least, was it 30% uh, reduction? Mm-hmm. I think it was by 2030. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a, a massive number when looking at the number of livestock and ruminants on our, on our land. So, yeah. yeah, that's the one that we're going after. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think just putting New Zealand along with other companies um, on the map with alternative proteins, mm-hmm. um, that would be, it'd be great to start a whole new wave um, on the back of dairy and saying, hey, this is what the future of New Zealand ag looks like. Um, and and this is an exciting, you know, bloody exciting space to be part of. Yeah, great. Well, that's a great vision. And um, we, we will look forward to seeing you succeed um, in that space. Jade, it's been great talking to you. Um, I hope you don't go away. We'd love to have you back on the show. Hey, it's been honoured to be here, Vincent. And uh, yeah, just, just can't wait to Um, connect with more people now that I'm back in New Zealand and and see what everybody else is up to. It's great. This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. 